This is Everyday Driver, where we know cars are expensive and necessary and have to do a world of things. But we also believe they should be fun. Whatever you need and can't afford, we're here to help you find the right car. We're your car friends, your car therapists, and sometimes the bad influence you need. I'm Paul. I'm Todd. And this is The Car Debate. Hello, everybody. Happy Tuesday. Not sure if you noticed, because all of the social media world was about uh, the fact there was this Porsche gathering. There was some Porsche gathering. Weekend. I don't really know. Enthusiasts got together with a bunch of Porsches. There was something about Porsches in a place. They were reunioning. I don't know what happened. Reunioning. Yeah. Yeah. Uh Uh-huh. That happened. <laughs> awesome. we, we were there. You probably heard our podcast from Friday where we talked about being there, which was actually really cool that, that Porsche brought us out for that. We got to see some of the madness. We got to see, uh, let's see, actual Dakar 911s parked in the parking lot. I saw three of on them. On dirt, which was Never nice. Never seen them before. We got to see lifted Cayennes, and now my wife and I are actually talking about lifted Cayennes. Thank you, Cayenne. by the way, everyone, for yes. sending us photos of lifted Cayennes because Todd is now seriously considering it, and he's yes. looking into parts already. I so we are parts. Yes. we're sort of starting down the road mm-hmm. to a potential light build. Yes. Yes, it's Everyone. not going to be hardcore, but I, but and I, this is exciting news. I flat out said to my wife, if we're going to drive to Moab and off-road something, I'd much rather drive there in a lifted Cayenne than a, than a Jeep Rubicon. It's just going to be a nicer place to be. Yeah. Plus, we own the Cayenne currently, which you is own nice. It right. If you're a person who has yes. like random Cayenne lifting parts, I'm going to admit that this is not my skill set. So, if you're, you work for Eurowise or somebody and you want to send stuff, let's have a conversation. Everyday Driver <laughs> TV at Gmail. I'll be more than happy to have that conversation <laughs> by email. But we're looking and we'll see where it goes that feels like super niche content but at the same time we're going to enter it in with that same kind of i don't know what i'm doing let's see where it goes that we're doing with the prius build and other stuff we're going to make it very relatable it's not going to be like i'm going to go hardcore off-roading and i'm going to take this time i have yeah yeah and we're going to make it different than the other one i have i can't believe i'm saying that but you know it's going to be interesting I, i think it'll be intriguing Thank you to Porsche agreed for, for having us out. It was really quite an event. 75th anniversary. What uh, mm-hmm. what a crazy time, and it was really good. We are moving on to some news from the FIA, who has approved Andretti Formula Racing to mm-hmm. progress to the next stage in their application to become the 11th team in Formula One. Applicants, according to the FIA, were judged on their sporting and technical capabilities, their resources, their ability to raise and maintain sufficient funding to allow them to participate at a competitive level, Mm. and their relevant experience and also human resources. According to FIA President Mohammed Ben Salim, their expression of interest builds on the positive acceptance of the FIA's 2026 F1 power unit regulations among the existing OEMs which has also attracted further commitment from Audi, Honda, Ford, and interest from Porsche and GM. Yeah, pretty amazing. The two big American car companies are kind of interested in F1 again? Ford and GM? Crazy. What? Also, you know, they're talking about the things that are required for a team to, to work. The Andretti team seems like it's better able to accomplish it, I hate to say this, than Williams. Yeah. I mean, Williams has been struggling for a while. They've lost anybody from the Williams family running it. I mean, they have a storied history but their ability to be competitive, to get sponsors, this kind of stuff, has proven very hard in the past years. I have to think, I could be wrong, but I have to think from a pure marketing perspective, the Andretti name enters Formula One. They're going to have an easier time getting sponsors, at least year one or two, than most other teams on the grid. Agreed. I mean, Mario raced F1. He and people was, are going to be like, wait, and I can we're be back. part of Andretti? Yes. That, that name is going to carry weight for Agreed. the first time. If they end up not doing well, it's a different conversation. But I'm talking right out of the gate. It's going to be like, oh, we can sponsor the Andretti team? Let's do that. 
totally agreed. Uh, apparently, Formula One management now has to approve the commercialization process, but at least it's a step forward. Mm -hmm. I also, as a side note, I was reading a little bit more about Mohammed Ben Salim. He was a 14-time FIA Middle East Rally Champion and won 61 international events as a driver from 1983 to 02. That's a ton. I had no idea. He yeah. was actually a driver and a, a winning competitive driver. So really interesting to, to read more about that guy. But I'm really excited that Andretti could be the 11th team. I'm, that would put 22 cars on the grid, right? You know, I'm seeing already things, little news rumblings about how Formula One interest has waned because Max is so dominant. Guess what happened in Formula One this week? Max won. <laughs> yeah. Guess what, guess what happened in Formula One last week? It. Actually, last week it wasn't Max I mean, winning. But anyway, yeah. It's still growing in interest. But, but yeah. I would like to see Colton Herta be one of the drivers for F1. That'd I would like to see more of the GM influence. Let's have uh, let's have Andretti back. I like that. Well, and you know, Drive to Survive has got to have some sort of drama. Plus, you know, they need an American team <laughs> So in they'll there. make it if it doesn't exist. I, I probably, that's right? what they do. They say, hey, this is the joy of editing. <laughs> what I found funny about when Drive to Survive first came out is how many of the F1 teams were like, well, that's not how it was. And I was like, you haven't met editors before, have you? You're used to doing a live sporting <laughs> exactly. event. Once you get an editor involved, they're going to rearrange stuff. That exactly. scowl you made because you didn't like the caviar, they're going to use that later to see if you might have a beef with another driver because this is what editors do. <laughs> that's true. Yeah. Well, bad news, everyone. The Fiat 500E has stopped being produced. This is also the factory that produces four Maseratis, the Gran Turismo, the gas and EV version, the Ghibli, the Levante, mm. and the Quattroporte. But good news, everyone. Sales for Maserati have been up 41% in the first half of the year, and the Grecale is apparently doing well. So Maserati's still okay, but factories have to be shut down for a while to accommodate uh, the market. They're not selling stuff. Let's just shutter the factory for a bit. Yeah, yeah, agreed. Over on Blipshift, our friends there have reintroduced the Screamin' Six shirt, now available for three or four more days. So go to Blipshift.com, and you can find our partner store. In honor of Rensport, it's back. It's really yeah, a pretty cool yeah, shirt. Yeah, really yeah. cool. We'll continually have more shirts and more content on there as well, but don't forget our friends at Blipshift. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armor all, less work, more clean. Terms apply. When you're cleaning your car after a summer of hard driving, be sure to wash in a cool, shady spot and use Griot's Garage Brilliant Finish Foaming Sprayer with Snow Foam. You can also connect the Boss Foam Cannon to your pressure washer and use Foaming Surface Wash and Polygloss. Griot's has also just introduced the Cordless Foaming Sprayer. You can create a high foam blizzard with little to no work and avoid wash-induced scratches, which is the safest way to wash your ride. Now, if you need to get bugs off the front of your car, try the bug and smudge remover right before you wash. Or if you've been tracking your car, track spray removes rubber streaks that always happen. The rubber smears and tire chunks come off really easy as soon as you use the track spray. Griot's offers wash and detail kits, which make it easy to get the right products together. Whether you just are doing a starter kit, it's your first time using Griot's, or you're breaking out a foam cannon and you're adding to your collection, Griot's has the right kit for you. Griot's garage products are 100% guaranteed and all liquids are made in the USA. When you're ordering at griotsgarage.com, please note there's a new code. Use DRIVER10 for 10% off everything on your order. That's G-R-I-O-T-S. Enjoy the finest quality car care products you can buy at griotsgarage.com. 
for our topic Tuesday today, uh, you you kind of ran home to mama here. Let's talk about design. It's a <laughs> it's great question thing. from Madgar82. He says, what is it with current sports car design? I mean, your ears perked up instantly, right? <laughs> yes. Nowadays, the current sports cars, they just seem really sharp and aggressive. He said he loves classic sports car design. The AC Cobra, the original Ferrari Testarossa, mm-hmm. the Porsche 550 Spider, the James Dean car. Now, he says he understands that they're round due to manufacturing capabilities at the time, which was the English wheel and everything was rolled out and fenders didn't actually match and stuff like this. But they were elegant. Mm-hmm. Doesn't feel like design mm-hmm. today is elegant with the rare exceptions of maybe the new t- upcoming T50, the Bentley Continental that's GT. Relatable. Exactly. The Bentley Continental GT, also not all that relatable. And he says, you know what? Some of Mazda's design language looks pretty good as well. But he said even Porsches, which traditionally, if you think about the 911 shape, were kind of rounded, have started to get edgy. So he's like, what is going on? Where's the elegant design for affordable modern sports cars? Matt, I really appreciate your question. It's actually tied in with something that I've been trying to put into words for a while. It's it's just a thought that has kind of been eating at me. And that is about car companies and asking the question, is it time for car companies to diverge and kind of go backwards? Mm, In mm. other words, do they need to dive into their history and look backwards to stay relevant, to create new concepts without doing the retro thing? Retro Mm, is too mm, easy. That's a mm. crutch. And it's too easy to look backwards and say, let's just do a flavor of that. We went through that era 20 years ago. I'm done with that era. I'm not saying that, but I'm looking at particular cars from manufacturers to bring back and use as inspiration for Mm. a new model, maybe with a different powertrain. The best example I can currently think of is Hyundai using their 1974 Hyundai Pony Coupe that spawned the hydrogen hybrid rolling Mm. lab known as the Envision 74, which by the way was a Giugiaro design. It doesn't seem retro to me, but it instantly struck a chord with all the enthusiasts, the drift crowd Mm -hmm. and race car enthusiasts, Mm -hmm. and they knew it would too. Even Volkswagen has talked about bringing the GTI back as an Evo, but they realize it cannot just be a GTI and because of a different powertrain, Mm. they're going to have to stay true to the original roots, this lightweight, chuckable little thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's not necessarily retro design, but it might be retro in how the car drives and feels. But when it comes to design, it seems like we go through phases. Mm. In the 90s, Ford had these elliptical shapes. It was ellipses and long. D- draw the sketch with your entire arm. And that's okay. that's really okay. what car designers do and are trained to do is not draw with your wrist, but use your entire arm. Mm-hmm. So draw from the shoulder to create beautiful surfaces, beautiful lines. And we saw that in the cool sketches of the Ford Taurus that then turned out in the production to be terrible. But the sketches looked really interesting and compelling. It seems like every 20 years, we go through this phase where designers discover, I should tilt the windshield of this truck design. I should tilt it forward. Nobody's ever thought of that. You know, like an airplane control tower? Uh Yeah, yeah. That'll be great. We we tilt the windshield forward, and it gives a different edgy look. That Uh will come back around. We'll see it. And then wait for it, it'll go away and be like, that's a bad idea. And then wait for it to come back around and people rediscover. What if we tilted the windshield the other it's way? It's like the bell bottoms of car design. Yeah. <laughs> Coming back, folks. Yes. But then even Ferrari with the production that you've identified, 
things done on English wheels to coax a shape out of the metal. Mm -hmm. You can do that in a stamping, but because cars are definitely still a fashion item, mm. things are cyclical. Yep. Designers are always looking for inspiration. So that's why I say, do they need to look backwards to some of these mm. prior cars to be inspired, but now they're bringing new hydrogen hybrid uh, drivetrains or mm -hmm. EV drivetrains or even a more fuel efficient gas engine. Fine. I was looking at Honda, trying to think, okay, what is a sexy shape from Honda? Mm. Well, first of, I thought of the S2000. Yeah. Thought, yeah. Okay, that's pretty interesting, but not really compelling as a, a beautiful flowing lines kind of design. But bright colors do look good on it because it's so simple and clean. Mm -hmm. yeah. So yeah. I went all the way back to the S500 from 1963 to 1964. But then I discovered the S800C, that fastback from 66 to 1970. That hmm. was actually kind of compelling. It was yeah. some beautiful yeah. surfaces from Honda. There's BMW. They already did the 507. They brought it back as the BMW Z8. But they've toyed with doing the 2002. They even did kind of an homage concept, mm -hmm. the 30SL, uh, CSL. And that 2002, it used some of the styling cues, but it definitely wasn't retro. And then I think about continuation cars, Matt. I think about the Jag continuation CND cars when Jag brought those to Monterey. Also, Aston Martin, they're not currently visually amazing like all the DB cars, the Valhalla and Valkyrie are, certainly, mm -hmm, but those mm -hmm. are not for everybody, even though Aston's in general are not for everybody. But still, <laughs> I'm, I'm wondering about all these cars and how this can be used to be inspiration. We've got new powertrain options available, and that will change proportions of cars. It doesn't have to be a straight six. And that will influence the design. We can take various cues and various surface elements. You know, I saw it in that Mission X concept when we were at Rensport because the fenders are very bulbous and beautiful, mm -hmm. contrasted by very directional, very forceful, engaging kinds of surfaces and mm -hmm. lines. Mm -hmm. And it's very purposeful. So I think cars from here on out are not just going to be sensual for the purpose of being sensual because at that point, it seems like they're too precious to drive. Mm. If they have a bit of specific function and that you, you see that reflected in the design, the powertrain usage, I think, will influence car design as it's coming back around. Because it seems like every company is trying to carve out their niche, despite the proliferation of five-seat EV SUVs, yes. the four-inch thick battery on the floor in the same spot as everybody else. <laughs> it seems like... Why does this drive like that other one? Wait, wait, <laughs> wait don't help me. Don't help me. Exactly. I'll get there. It's yeah. coming to me. It seems like every car company is trying to investigate the powertrains that will give them their place in mm. in the future. This is what Nissan is known for. This is what Toyota is known for. This is what Porsche is known for. They're trying to use design to carve out, here's what our family of products mm. are powered by. Mm. Here's what the design direction has dictated. And it can't just be the strakes and the slats and that kind of thing that, you know, on the back of some of that Audi e-trons. Mm -hmm. I think it's so dated already. It seems like you didn't know what to do here. That used to be the place where there was an exhaust pipe or quad pipes. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And you just put a simple plastic panel in there and put some texture on it. You've got to try harder and, and explore more. Let's go further. That bumps up against a couple of thoughts I had. Matt, I, you're right. 
the original design of a lot of these cars were done on this English wheel. If you've ever seen one, it's literally like this metal wheel on the top of about a five-foot-tall post. They could adjust how high it was. They can roll the fender over it. Mm-hmm. it. It's actually really cool to see anybody working with an English wheel, and you make these amazing rounded fenders and that kind of stuff. The problem is this is not mass-market production. Nothing really matches, but it looks really cool. <laughs> Symmetry it, is overrated. It, it did dictate that. That is part of it. But I also think there's another thing that's interesting that we don't talk about a lot about those those classic cars that were made with an English wheel. What's interesting, if you look back into that, a lot of those cars were not very good aerodynamically. They, they look like they, they are. They thought they were. Yeah. They designed them thinking they would be, but this is pre-wind tunnel. Actually, the movie Ford versus Ferrari does a good sequence on this where they actually show you they've they've taped all the strings all over the Ford GT and they're trying to figure out why it does stuff and they're driving around Willow watching the strings with binoculars, yeah. watching when the strings move, and that changes. That car actually is surprisingly boxy-lined. It's not like a Ferrari flowing shape. Yeah. It's got a lot of sharp sharp lines in it. So what's interesting is a lot of those nice rounded shapes aren't all that good aerodynamically, which is interesting. So aerodynamics is now a huge thing. And I'm going to give you two extreme examples because so many modern cars are designed. I'm going to give you three reasons here why I think everything is so sharp. This first one is aerodynamics. Two cars I'm going to give you on the opposite ends of the spectrum that look the way they do entirely because of what the air does. The first one... The Nissan Leaf, the first one with those really awful headlights. The reason it had awful headlights is because that was aerodynamic airflow to split the air over the nose to miss the side mirrors Mm -hmm. so that it would get better range. And that's why it had that really ugly front end. That was in that was designed, dictated by airflow. I'll give you the other end of the spectrum. Designers hated that. You just know it. The other one is the brand new Porsche 911 GT3 RS. Now, mm-hmm. it's striking looking, mm-hmm. but compare it to these cars of the 60s you're talking about. Would you call that car pretty? Think about all the places where there's these weird wings. Instead of having a body panel, it's got like a, a caved-in shape with a wing off the side of it. That's because we need the air to do specific things there. That's a good point. Because yeah. there's all that car is all about aerodynamics. Now, it's using it for the opposite way from the Leaf, but in, but in every case, you've taken the 911 shape and you've chopped it up to give it airflow. So that's affecting things. Also, another thing affecting cars big time that I'm seeing is modern crash standards. I will give you one close to my heart. This is the reason the Lotus Elise will never exist again. Mm -hmm. Pedestrian crash standards are the reason that all the Hondas have that extra little upper bumper thing, that little nose beak thing that works on some cars better than others Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. you're trying to get the new crash standards in Europe. You have to get the hood a certain amount of distance off of all of those frustratingly hard metal bits. You got to create a gap for somebody to hit it. Now, my thinking is, get out of the street. But that's a separate thing. So, but anyway, Hard points is what yeah, you're talking about. Modern crash standards dictate that a lot of cars have to look a certain way to meet modern crash standards. If you're making a car in the 1960s, there's no crash standards. Frankly, this is why James Dean died. Mm-hmm. Okay, that car yeah. looks great, but there were no crash standards for that car. True. And the last one that I've seen a few times that I think is slowly ruining good sports car design is when a, when a manufacturer lands on an iconic, like, oh, that looks beautiful. The problem is they don't want to completely rethink it because they landed on such a great shape. So the only way to quote unquote modernize it for the next gen is to put more creases on it. I'll give you four examples. Okay. The original Lamborghini Countach. Yes. Now, while that yes. seems like a wedge design, the original one in the 70s is pretty simple looking. 
Now look at the 1989 25th anniversary when Horatio Pagani got a hold of it. And how do we make it 80s and more modern? We add strakes mm-hmm. and more strakes. That's and true. if I added a couple more strakes, it would be really cool. <laughs> yes. So there's that. I'll give you another one. The original Mazda Miata is kind of a hot dog. I mean, it's great looking, but the original NA is really simple. Yeah. And over yeah. time, what they've kind of done is just kind of made it sharper. Two more, the original Audi R8. Look at that one compared to the current one. The difference is more like sharp creases because we we settled on a really great shape for the R. It looks really nice. But when we make Gen 2, it can't look just like Gen 1. Well, what if we put a little sharp line here and we make the the taillights a little more boxy? Mm -hmm. Then it's Gen 2. And the last one, close to your heart, watch how the Cayman has progressed. Agreed there. The 987 is lots of great rounded shapes. The 718 is all of those shapes two generations later when they just made them have more creases. Like a little tiny line there, that'll make it the new version. Because what you could do, the 981 that you have, I think is the best looking of all of them. Totally You could have just stayed right there, but you can't because we got a new gen coming, but we can't start over because it's the Cayman and it looks like this. What if I added some lines? Interesting. I like hearing your perspective on that because designers always want a theme of some sort, but Mm -hmm. when you're doing a next generation of the same car, you can't go use a theme like you're designing the car from the inception Mm -hmm. in the very beginning. You have to update it and modernize it based on what? Yeah. It's it's a group decision, Mm -hmm. really. It's the design manager and here's the sketches, here's how we want to update it, and it might actually tie in, in the case of a lot of car companies, it ties into what a corporate look that is yeah. uh, matching the signature vehicle that defines that, that mm-hmm. f- company's family. Like the Mercedes S-Class is kind of the definition of what any future style will be derived from, whether it's an yeah. SUV, yeah, yeah, whether it's a smaller car, the S-Class is that flagship that they look at. But now I can't say that the 911 is the flagship because we've got Cayennes and Panameras that really kind of set the tone. Mm, mm. And then 911s and Cayennes and, or Caymans are kind of yeah, updated yeah. to match. Mm. That goes for all car companies. You know, we see yeah. the flagship car come out and then we'll see all iterations kind yeah. of spawn yeah. from there just to make a family look. Mm. But you, you can't say that a particular theme has been reintroduced on a car when that didn't match the original intent. Sure. It's really down to the designer's eye and the design Mm. team's choice. And Hey, we all agree. We kind of like that. That seems like an updated, cool design. And a lot of times it can be kind of arbitrary, but if it looks good and it's appropriate within the family of cars, then that's kind of the direction. If it meets all the design brief, then Mm -hmm. that's kind of the direction people will go. But Matt, it doesn't seem like, beauty is top of mind for any car design anymore. Mm, interesting. It doesn't seem like designers set out to make the most beautiful object mm, they possibly mm. can. Manufacturing techniques aside. Interesting point. They have a theme to represent. They have a, a family of cars to, to continue on down that road. But to really throw all that out and set a new direction, this is where BMW's at. <laughs> that new class I wondered thing. if you'd go there. Hey, what on earth? What a time to reset the meter. Mm. And they did that at Villa de Est uh, a few mm-hmm. years ago. 
And that did that Z4 shooting break with the current Z4. It looked great. Well, that and the prior uh, 3.0 CSL oh, version yeah, that they right. did. Uh-huh. Yeah, you're right. Mm-hmm. Gorgeous, freaking beautiful. And yeah, then they good stuff. ignored all of that great work. <laughs> the Gina concept. See these? These are pretty. These are really pretty. Everybody likes this. This is really gorgeous. We're not doing that. I loved. We both love that Gina concept yeah, from yeah, years really ago. Really crazy. The fabric stretched over the armature yeah. that actually moved underneath. Mm-hmm. What an inspirational thing! It was only for a sports car, but you could take yeah. some of those fabric bunching and do an abbreviated shape for a more mm-hmm. detailed area, and then have a nice stretched fabric kind of thinking for the larger surfaces for the slabs. Mm. But they threw all that out. Yeah, I don't yeah. know why. <laughs> Because we had to make teeth. That's it. Clearly. Drew writes to us from Estes Park, Colorado. We definitely know where that is. Yeah, he explains it. I'm like, yeah, we've been to Estes. We've shot things in Estes. Estes is gorgeous. Yeah, it's amazing. He lives there, and he is driving currently a pretty sad and common car. A 2009 all-wheel drive Honda CRV. Hmm. He says it's got VTEC, and it's <laughs> kind of fun. Well, the VTEC's fun. Yeah. But he says it's kind of slow, especially at altitude. Because it's not a turbo. It's got VTEC, yeah. but it's no turbo. And he lives up at Estes Park. And that's, plus it's a CRV, which is fine, but it's not exciting. And he's trying to solve that. He really is. He is sniffing around manual transmissions. He says the Elantra N does spark his interest, but get it in DCT or manual is the big question for him. He's never driven a manual, just some practice here and there. And it would be cool to row his own gears. Okay. I like your thinking, Drew. I agree, yeah. Yes to that, and you're going to have to find a friend. You're going to have to find an opportunity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know what? You could probably Turo a current Elantra just in Denver and go get some practice. Or, or you know what? Turo anything manual and spend some time with it. You'll get better, then you'll have to learn the Elantra a bit, but the take-up will be a lot easier. We agree with your next statement about winter. It comes down to having the right tires for snow driving. You're mm-hmm. absolutely right. Mm-hmm. He drives to Denver and Fort Collins area for family. He says every now and then he does the 16-hour drive back home to Arizona. Okay. So it would be cool to have a fun car again and to be able to join in on Cars and Coffees and possibly do road trips with his girlfriend. His past cars include an 05 Elantra. Not an Elantra N at that point. An no, 05 there was Elantra, no N, yes. mm-hmm. Yeah. And 1997 Volvo 850R, which was his second car. Mm. He said it was really good. Five cylinders and a turbo, one of the best-sounding engines he's ever driven. Those are sweet. Those were those were underappreciated, I feel like, in their time. And then the farther we get from them, <laughs> we're like, that was really cool. Five-cylinder turbo manual wagon. Like, <laughs> yeah. Why isn't anybody building those anymore? Because <laughs> nobody bought them. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, moving on. Well, he says the CRV is paid off. He likes having no car, car payment. And he said a, a used Elantra N is okay, and the Elantra is getting a refresh. Yes, but that's not a used car at this point. And dealers are apparently trying to get the old ones out. I, yep. I like that you're really asking for permission to go get an Elantra N. And we yes. do say get a manual because even if you have it a short time and realize it's not for you, at least you've had time with a manual. But what if you really discover it and you love it? Mm. It's the right car. Winter tires on that thing and it's front wheel drive and it'll be amazing in snow. It'll be just fine. It's all about the tires. I, I will say on the manual thing, the only reason to not get the manual, and I thought about this, is if you, and it doesn't seem like you're going to, if you're going to sit in traffic regularly 
or if you have somebody else, your girlfriend or, or whoever, that needs to drive the car regularly and they can't do a manual or don't want to learn. Mm-hmm. Those are the only reasons I can think of to not get one. Otherwise, I agree with Paul. The life experience yeah. of it, you will enjoy and you will get to that place. I love this place. It's it's this Zen place where you forget you're driving a manual and you're doing it anyway. I, mm-hmm. that, that to me is really cool. I mean, I like driving a manual and focusing on it and trying to drive it as fast and efficiently as possible. That's fun. But I also like the, I'm going freeway speeds. I never really thought about shifting. I just am. It's yeah, great. It's really fun, yeah. If for whatever reason, a manual becomes not an option in your life. I was thinking about the Veloster N. If you were looking for some other Hyundai suggestion in there, I thought we liked that, that, that a lot too. Yep, I agree. It's, he's going to find one cheaper that way, Veloster N. Uh, yeah, that's true. And I actually think he avoids, this is why I was on my thinking, it's a little bit less controversial styling. If you don't love the, the front end styling of the Elantra N, the Veloster N, I think, is a better looking front end. It's a different, obviously, packaging because of the three doors, but surprisingly usable and every bit is fun. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. If you don't go the manual route, you can't ignore the Mazda 3 Turbo. It's all-wheel mm-hmm. drive. I do still understand that desire for manual, but it's automatic uh, only in the Mazda 3 Turbo. Yep. But the car... Drew, that I want you to go buy is a BMW 2 Series Coupe. I was looking at the iX versions, but those are automatics. So if you wanted to, you could Mm. go like Mm. a manual 2018 230i Coupe before Beaver Teeth. They were smaller. Yeah. Rear-wheel drive only, but with a manual. Yes to winter tires. And you still could pull that off. I do believe you still could do that. And yeah, tires really matter at that point. Not like they didn't anyway. (laughs) Still, I was thinking, okay, if you, for whatever reason, decide an automatic, the iX version of any of those two series coupes are great. They're very good. I agree. It'd be much better for you to have the rear wheel drive. You'd enjoy that chassis more. And there is somebody, probably your family in Arizona going, you can't drive rear wheel drive and that's just park in the snow. And I'm going to say, yes, you can. Yes, you Because can. it's all about the tires. You asked, actually asked uh, Drew as well about the Civic Si, the new one. I would say that's a great choice. I do really like that for you. I have two more for you. One is Mini Cooper S. It's cool. I, yeah. Look, I had the really little one of the of the updated minis. They've only gotten bigger since then. It's a surprisingly usable car. Good chassis. The current ones are very, very fun and often overlooked. They have a surprising amount of space. I think it is BMW's best entry-level car, okay? <laughs> because the, for whatever reason... Super the, is the best sports car BMW uh-huh. builds. The Mini is the best entry-level car the mm-hmm. BMW builds. Well, it's it's potentially their best front-wheel drive because here's the problem. They have that, that... Why BMW did this is beyond me. You have a 2 Series, which you can get in rear-wheel drive. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, it's rear-wheel drive architecture. You have the 2 Series Grand Coupe, which is not that chassis at all. It's, it's the one not. that they use in the Mini. It's front-wheel drive. And for some reason, it's fun in the Mini, and it's not fun at all in the Grand Coupe. Yeah, so you what paid you really, more, and it's uglier. Yes, it's all of the above. So get a Mini Cooper S. That's one to look at. And then if you're going to be looking at the 2 Series BMW, you have to drive the first gen or second gen. That is the Toyota GT86 or mm. the GR86. Because both of those, we've and look, I drove them both in the winter a lot. We drove our GR86 a lot in the winter when we had it. Yep. Both of those with good winter tires on them. They're so lightweight and communicative that you never feel like you're in a problem in the winter. Agreed. They, yes. they don't have heft to worry about, and they're, they tell you so much about the driving, you would enjoy the manual transmission on that, and I think you'd find it every bit as usable as that 2 Series. Not as powerful, but certainly every bit as usable. If you're going to drive the others, you should at least drive those. Write to us with your own debate, everydaydrivertv at gmail.com. We're looking forward to hearing all your car debates. Over on social media, I'm looking at Instagram for a question from Danny Boy 71 
asking for the story of our first track days. Mm, I like this. Danny boy is trying his first in a couple of days and would like to know how ours was so he's a little more comfortable. My first experience really truly on track was being driven by Danny McKeever in a Cobra replica <laughs> around the big track at Willow Springs. Oh, man. A guy I knew had one, and we went out there. Oh, man. And the stuff he was doing in that, he was like, we're just kind of doing some parade laps here. I thought we were going to go skidding across the desert at any moment. <laughs> and he's going, eh, parade laps. Meh. <laughs> no biggie. And I went, I can't believe this is what sports cars really, truly feel yeah, like on a yeah. track. And that was low speeds. Mm. And then we built it up. I don't remember my exact first time driving on track, but we had a lot of different track days. They were the manufacturer press days mm -hmm. where they held all, they brought all the press cars in the fleets to the track and kind of turned the journalists loose. They don't yep. really do that anymore they, they because don't. there have been a lot issues. of stupidity happened. Lots and of issues. Bad driving quickly revealed itself uh -huh. because people think they can drive on track. But then when they're turned loose without any instruction, they suddenly realize <laughs> they know nothing. <laughs> so as far as comfort level, if you, wherever you're going, Danny boy, where, whatever track you are at, if you can find the local hot shoe or a local mm, instructor, mm -hmm. or if they provide instructors, first of all, a ride along, well, they're riding with you to point out mm -hmm. the the landmarks and what where your eyes yep. should be and what you should be looking at. We're not even talking at speed yet. You're just doing a little bit of track reconnaissance with that driver who knows the track and then working up to technique after that because for your first track days, do not worry about speed. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. Nobody cares. You want, you want to just learn the track. Yeah. Speed will come. As you start to understand the car, understand your tires, understand temperatures and air pressure in your tires, and then you start to understand the line a little bit better. And mm -hmm. well, I I just gained five seconds. I didn't know I could go flat through that corner. Mm -hmm. Well, that's a revelation. Your skill will build very quickly yeah, if you yeah. start with somebody who knows the track first. That's so key. I fully agree with that. My experience is obviously very similar to yours. I do think my first ever track day was one of those Motor Press Guild track days. Was it? I'd, yeah, done, I a, I'd done a lot of LA Canyons. I'd done a lot of other driving at all kinds of speeds and all kinds of cars. But first track day was one of those. And it was, it was three laps a car. So here's everything from every manufacturer, three laps a car. You go out, you do, you know, kind of your warm up lap, your flying lap, and your in lap. And it was in the infield of the, uh, what was it, the Fontana tr Raceway. California okay. Speedway out there, yeah. Yeah, way out there in Fontana. And I was at least self aware enough, because again, there were no instructors. I was at least self aware enough to not be like, what's the fastest thing here? <laughs> I went and got something that really had no business being on a track. And I started there. Now, in yeah, your case, Danny yeah. Boy, you're going to be in your car, which comes right back to what Paul is talking about. Get that instructor in with you right seat. Mm -hmm. And then also, and this was the reason I picked the slow car in the paddock, build up. Yes. Just just go just go around. Just just I, I was at a track day here not that long ago. It's probably been a couple of years now, but I was at a track day here locally, and I was behind somebody in a silver Ultima. Okay. And it was clear to me that they'd never been on a track before. Mm. Yeah. And that's fine. It's absolutely fine. That's why you're there. If you're in the, yes. the novice group, that's the entire point. So go around slowly, get a lay of the land, listen to your tires squeal, because I didn't realize they would squeal right there. That will happen, okay? <laughs> Break too early, because it's better than too late. Yes. Just do all these things, and then work your way up, and you slowly over time start to understand things. Do not go out and be like, I'm at a track. I must go fast. That's the wrong thinking. 
The, it, it's yeah. much better for you to feel how a car does things and how it changes direction. And then I think most people on their first track day end up being surprised by how high the levels of grip are in their car and how good the braking is. Because most people, not all, some people try to send it first day. Don't do that. Uh, first lap. But, but most yeah. people end up being surprised at the capability of their car versus finding the edges first lap. That's the wrong approach. But get an instructor with your right seat. Let them show you the way. You're going to think like, well, I mean, the curbing shows me I go right. Yeah, but are you going right properly? I know that sounds weird, but are you actually going right, looking the correct place so the car exits at the right place? And I guarantee you, first day on track, you won't be. That's what the, the instructor right seat is for. They're going to be like, no, 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 sorry. Get a little further left. Okay, now look for this thing. Now look at that on the exit. And then you're going to realize, just like we talk about with dancing or skiing or anything that is balance-related, when you get it right, you feel it. And that's a yeah, nice that's thing. Good. If you can have, Danny, if you can have a couple of those sensations on your first day, you've succeeded, where you feel the difference between that corner didn't feel right. And, the, and when you hit it and you go, oh, oh, that's where the car should be. Oh, that feels totally different. Those revelatory moments are going yeah. to build over time. I don't want you to even try to learn the track. I really don't. I want you to try to get a couple of corners where you're just like, mm-hmm. oh, that makes a difference. Mm-hmm. You're absolutely right. I'm thinking high level at this point. It's good to think through this. Mm-hmm. I like your question, Danny Boy, because neither Todd or I are golfers. But it reminds me, my dad is a golfer and golfed all the way through high school. And, and I actually did a lot of golfing with him, but then I decided we wanted to do a different kind of driving. So... <laughs> <laughs> do you have driving shoes? Oh, you mean golf? No, I do not. Nope. Yeah. It's that old joke in golf where the instructor tells you all these little nuances and all these things, you know, keep your head down, keep your eye on the ball, get your hips like this, bend your knees. When they should have been told the whole point of golf is to get this little white ball into the hole way down there. Mm-hmm. Let's start there. What is the equivalent of that for track room? Let's just get you around because we're not talking racecraft to start. We're not no, shaving not tents. At all. No. We're not trying to understand that exact turn in air temperature, tire pressure. You know, <laughs> my, my pressures are, are way too low. They were way too low. <laughs> yeah. Let's start with the high level stuff from your instructor before they start to dive down into the minutiae. There's so much minutiae in track driving. And then, you know, talking about your car, let's just get that lap around. Let's get the high level of things first. That instructor will help you get there and and ask for that. You have to be vocal Mm -hmm. because they're instantly going to want to watch your hands and they can tell where your eyes are. They do not have to be Mm -hmm. looking at your eyes to know exactly where your eyes were and were not based on how you turned in and what your speed was. Just ask politely, hey, can we can we just do the high level first? Help me to get around. Help me understand the landmarks to look for to start mm-hmm. with. Then let's start getting into speed. We're just going slow to work up. That way it'll be much less intimidating. Again, the whole point of golf is to just put this ball in the hole down there mm-hmm. in as few strokes as you possibly can. <laughs> Why didn't you tell me that from the beginning? That's Why did you excellent. tell me all this minutia? That's excellent. Just tell me to put the ball in the hole. That's it. <laughs> Dan- and we're good, right? <laughs> Danny, I'm going to add $55 million. <laughs> Sponsored by Nike. PGA Excellent. champion. Here we go. Come on. Oh, the hole. Oh, the hole. <laughs> oh, okay. That. I'm going to build on something Paul just said, Danny, and also say this to you. This is what I'm about to tell you is every first time person on track, myself included, I'm going to really encourage you to forget that the speedometer exists. Yes. Because what yes. we want to do, because you do this when you drive on the street, you're like, oh, it says 65, I'm doing 75. 
can I do 85? Ooh, what about 88? <laughs> this you're, is you're, good. You're obsessed yeah. with that number and you're going to yeah. get on track where you know you're going to go fast. You're going to get obsessed with that number again. But the problem is now you're looking into the cabin. You need... I mean, you're not going to do this, but it's almost like instrument fl- the opposite of instrument flight reading. Like, I'd love it if you could black out your instrument panel so you have nothing to look at but <laughs> yes. down the hood and out because yes. the more you look down the hood and out, eyes up, it will transform your ability to learn the track and where to position the car. And Paul's right. When I was first in with an instructor, I couldn't believe how much he said, eyes up, eyes up, eyes up. And I kept thinking, I am looking up, but I realized, no, I wasn't. Right. And he could right. instantly tell. Yeah. You're jer- more jerky. Your movements are late and poor. But if your eyes are up, you're going to anticipate so much better. And you're going to see the thing. Your instructor goes, okay, so see the third tree on the right? Not if you're looking at the fact you just went 56 miles an hour, you won't. Exactly. Okay, so right. forget the speedo and look up. <laughs> it's fun to think back through all this stuff. It is funny, isn't it? Like this. Lots of good questions. Thank you guys, as always, for chiming in on this. Uh, Let's see. Uh, Marvin47 is uh, throwing stones at Chevy. He says, if you don't need back seats, what's the point of getting a Camaro versus a Corvette? Marvin, I'll go you one further. You can't really use the back seats of a Camaro. (laughs) I mean, you can if you're not trees like us, but it's not really all that usable. Plus, the trunk's not all that usable because it has a surprisingly small opening. He said, if you're going to spend the same budget on either choice, it seems the Corvette is a better driver's car for most years and models. Two things going on there. I would say in almost every case, just as a driver's car, Corvette over Camaro. But there are people that just like that big, boxy, muscle car feel and shape. Mm -hmm. Because honestly, the Corvette has more actual space and headroom than the Camaro has for the last few generations. It actually has better visibility too. But... What's the style? Because the problem, of course, is that the Corvette has had this this reputation of only being an old man's car being driven slowly. And slowly, I think that's changing. The Camaro has maintained this feel of a younger person's car or a person for a car, a better Mm -hmm. car for a person Mm -hmm. with attitude. Okay, a Corvette is a lot of attitude. Corvette is the is the car for a person who wants to drive slowly. That's the perception right off the bat. If you're shopping for driver's car, the other reality is the fact that the Corvette weighs less. I mean, I'm the only guy that brings up weights all the time because look at what I drive. But the Corvette always weighs less than the Camaro, so it is the better driver's car. But there is something about that personality and attitude of an actual muscle car, which is why the Camaro and the Challenger, the Challenger is enormous, and the Mustang keeps selling because I want that feel, not what the Corvette says. I was going to say insurance, but all the insurance algorithms already know what the car is. Mm -hmm. You can't say, well, it's got four seats. So, so it's closer to a minivan. Yes. It's closer to a giant people hauler. Yes. Uh Sure it is. Uh huh. (laughs) Can't say that anymore. Jorge just asked us, uh, well, actually last time, if we can discuss all the cool history behind some car names. Jorge, I like this question. Case in point, Cadillac's Blackwing. Apparently, Mm. it refers to the blackbirds, maybe swans, on their previous emblems that originate as far back as the Crusades and are from the family crest of Antoine de la Moth Cadillac, whoever that is. But I went digging, Jorge, because this got me really interested. As a matter of fact, Andrew Sheldon of the Northeast Region AAA wrote an article May 19th, 2023. You can find it online. It's all about car logos and names. Mm. As a matter of fact, the Cadillac company was named after Antoine de la Moth Cadillac, 
who was the man who founded Detroit in 1701, which is actually a wow. French word. Okay. He was a French explorer. It's a French word, D apostrophe E-T-R-O-I-T. So it's Detroit, really, okay. is the name of the city. And the manufacturer honored this explorer, not just in name, but also in the logo, which is based on his family crest. Hmm. You can go read this entire article. He covers, Andrew covers many of these uh, manufacturers, but the one I'll leave you with was, of course, Maserati, because it really intrigues me. Mm-hmm. I've called it, called it the pickle fork forever because yes, it's like have. that little olive. I, I do. Like I love that. Fork, it's you know, really good. The buffet line. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, and, and your pickle fork shirt, one of my all time favorites. Yeah. <laughs> this logo is unique because Andrew writes it has had existed since the creation of the company, remained for nearly a century, virtually unchanged. But around 1920, the manufacturer needed a logo it hoped would make their car stand apart. So the family commissioned artist Mario Maserati, who was the sixth Maserati brother and the Hmm. only one uninterested in engines. Interesting. Okay. So Mario was inspired by the Fountain of Neptune in Piazza Maggiore in Bologna, where the Maserati brothers established the company. And hmm. it depicts Neptune holding a trident, a symbol of strength and vigor. Neptune holding a pickle fork, exactly. ready to eat. <laughs> Where are the olives? <laughs> so this trident logo is born. The red and blue colors of the Bologna banner adorn the image. And Maserati says the trident underlines the exclusive status of the firm's cars and their identity as masterpieces of elegance, luxury, and sports car performance. In search of olives. In search of cocktail olives. <laughs> Didn't expect that to go there. <laughs> anyway, uh, there's a lot of really good questions, guys. Thank you. Nick Lancey is asking if he has tuned out of class. He sent us a fantastic photo of a rig I've never even seen before. I don't know if you saw his photo, Paul. He's got a Porsche Boxster. Okay. Oh, yes. And the Porsche Boxster has these interesting cages. Remember, Boxsters are convertible. Over the mirror I'm over the windows coming from the a pillar to the back there's this interesting cage that creates a rack on the top so he can put his kayaks on top of his boxster and his question is is this tuning out of class and I'm gonna say absolutely not because this is you wanting to drive a sports car all the time and you figured out how to incorporate your hobby into your sports car because now now I will say this Nick if you told me this is how the boxster always looks all day, every day, it constantly has kayaks tied to the top. I would say, yes, you've tuned out of class. But if this is, I go kayaking every now and then, and I figured out a way to do it in my boxer, then I would say, well, bravo, sir. If it's, well, what I really need is a kayak hauler, so I bought a boxer. Yes, you've tuned it out of class. <laughs> okay, good point. I've got a lot of quick questions here. 614MX5 says, in our recent Mercedes-Benz C300 review, we said the car is like a baby S-Class. While this might be good for C300 owners, do we think it might make S-Class owners upset? No, because Mercedes has always said that. The S-Class sets the standard, and that is the benchmark. Mm -hmm. And every other car from there downwards is is set that tone is set by the s class so no it's not a slight it means you've bought the best one of that iteration and mercedes themselves have always said you know it's like the s class they even call the eqe 580 sort of like the s class of their ev uh, mm-hmm. suvs they, they all refer to the s class and point up at that so for C300 owners, it's aspirational. It's, I want to own an S-Class someday. For S-Class, it means I've gotten, I'm already at the mm, top. I'm mm. at the pinnacle. I've also got Joe Fisher who says there's I been some talk one. regarding headphones in the car, which you wanted to ask, aren't noise-canceling headphones illegal when driving? 
Not to my knowledge. I've looked around, Joe, because I like this question as well. It depends on who you ask and where you ask and the state you're in. And the argument against them, and I'm going to come right back down to the fact that I wear them all the time in the Lotus, and I'll explain in a second. The argument against them is the fact that noise-canceling headphones, theoretically, will make you unable to hear stuff you would have heard if it was coming around you. But that is where I argue. Because if I'm driving the Lotus Elise... There is so much wind noise and so much engine noise that I promise you it is drowning out anything I would hear. I don't hear 18-wheelers beside me when I'm in the Lotus Elise. Think about that for a second. I don't because there's so much noise. It is completely overwhelming everything else. If I put noise-canceling headphones on, not only is it easier for me to tolerate on a 2,000-mile road trip, but now it kills all of that constant noise. The thing Mm noise-canceling headphones don't do is kill sudden noise. They never do. A piercing, instantaneous... A noise that comes out of somewhere else other than the thing it's already Mm -hmm. compensating for. So the noises you're going to hear of something happening you ought to hear, that's going to be a new noise that the noise-canceling headphones haven't killed. And in the case of the Lotus Elise, I'm not going to hear anything else if I don't have them on. And Joe, I would also argue that because you have noise-canceling headphones on, you're paying attention to what you're doing and therefore more able to be aware and hear what's going on. Hopefully. Not looking at your phone. Everybody says it's illegal to look at your phone when driving and nobody does. <laughs> I mean, everybody looks at their phone. You're nobody, right. You're right. Nobody, yeah. cares. Nobody, nobody cares. Nobody cares. Everybody mm-hmm. ignores the illegality of that and nobody realizes how bad of a driver you instantly become when you look at your phone for any length of time yeah. that is a reality i will die on that hill please stop looking at your people phones. have died as a result of that yes they have yes, but absolutely. if you're wearing noise canceling headphones you're not looking at a phone you're actually driving and you're more comfortable just like wearing a motorcycle helmet mm. you're more comfortable and aware and if a bug hits you in the eye you're not going to instantly be distracted <laughs> It'll freak and you out a cause bit, a crash. but you're not going to be, my eye. Yeah, you're right. Good point. <laughs> Anthony Z also asks, what is worse, a scratch on your car or a scratch on your watch? Oh, okay. Watch enthusiasts everywhere. I don't care. I don't wear a watch. But anyway. I know you don't. <laughs> Problem this is solved. for me. <laughs> I think what's worse is a scratch on your car. Okay. Because your watch really tells the story of your life and where you wear the watch. Oh, and okay. Yeah, right. I, I banged it against something. But you know what? I banged against that rock when we were on vacation in the mm. place and I got this cool photo and it brought back a cool memory. Interesting. Not okay. that I love it, but there is such a thing as that old watch, that patina, mm. and all those scratches kind of tell the story of the wearer. It's like a Ferrari. If there's no scratches on your Ferrari... What have you been doing? No rock chips at all? But mm. then I, I, you know, I digress to the car. I'd rather have dirt, not rock chips mm. and scratches because it's almost like a badge of honor to have scratches on your watch, mm. but not on your car. If I, I, I don't know. I, I mean, dirt on my car, I'm fine with. Sure, sure, sure. No problem. Mm-hmm. I can wash the dirt off. I can get it clean. <laughs> but the watch to me tells more of the, the life story because it it's like on that. my body. It's on my, you know, it's yeah. everywhere I go and it has nothing to do with cars. I like that. Wherever I am, it tells mm. my life story. Whereas the car, okay, I'm out there, I'm driving it, we're mm-hmm, getting it mm-hmm. dirty. I don't love the rock chips. Plus it's more expensive to fix the car than it is the watch. It is. Can't you get a new face for your watch? Quite a bit cheaper, but yeah, yeah. I take your point. That's a good, that's a good answer. I like that. Jim is asking on Facebook. He said he watched our recent Accord hybrid review over on the test drive. Now keeping in mind, our test drive channel is for standalone single car reviews. That's the two of us in the car. It actually is quite a bit like this podcast, which is why we release the audio from those on Wednesdays between our two podcast episodes every week. So that happens every Sunday is when we release those. 
those. We also try to have POVs often on that channel. On our original channel, the Everyday Driver channel on YouTube, that's the one with the bigger following, but it's also the one that's focused on comparisons or long-term stuff we're doing with our own cars, which is why the road trips drop there. If you haven't seen the South Dakota piece, plug, 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 plug. Please watch it now. It <laughs> yes. is 80 minutes. Yes. It is feature length. I think it, I would encourage you on a weekend to sit down and, and watch it, and I think you're going to thoroughly enjoy it. I say that because you guys that have watched it have told us that. Thank you for watching. We're looking forward to doing more road trips. Anyway, back to Jim's question, which was the Accord review. He just watched it. He said, wait a minute. Watching that makes him wonder about derivatives. What about the Accord SI Wagon? Or the Accord Type R? Or sure. the return of the Accord Cross Tour? And instead of Track Daily Crush, he's actually throwing those three out at us and going, tease, produce, or forget the Ooh. SI Wagon, the Accord Type R, or the cross tour. Well, I'm just going to forget the cross tour. We don't need that again. Plus, Honda makes a ton of SUVs. If you need if you need SUV space, buy a Pilot or a Passport. Yeah. Exactly. Okay, don't don't burden your poor Accord with having to wear a backpack. Okay? <laughs> Let's not do that again. So we're going to forget that one. Which leaves me with the SI Wagon and the Accord Type R. I think the Accord Type R gets teased because I'd love Honda to play with the idea but I don't think there's a market. Unless Toyota comes out with the GR Camry. True. But I think the SI wagon, an Accord wagon, possibly with a manual, please, 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 Honda, produce that. Well, that's good. I'm going to guess your livery, Todd, because Lord Vader says, if we had to do a livery wrap on our vehicles, what would it be? Mm. Lord Vader is a sucker for the martini livery on everything. See, I like the martini, but only on some cars. And mm. I've seen martini livery done badly. And True. I don't always like it. I've seen it so overdone. It's like, okay, we get it. You like the racing history. <laughs> like, fine, but could you dial it back? And is that your race car? Because see, on any of my cars, I don't want anything. So I'm going to apply this only to race cars. And I would say I'd want to kind of do my own thing. Yeah, I'd want would. it kind of you clean would. and simple. Maybe a meatball on the door, maybe some GT stripes. But otherwise... Pretty straightforward, pretty clean and simple. So the martini is red, white, and blue with all the little black stripes. Mm, the golf orange is the, the golf, baby blue. The, the golf is the is the orange and blue. I've seen that, but it's that again, can be overdone. Take That's the other one I feel far. like is overdone as well. It's overdone. It's like mm -hmm. orange, blue, and then down to little vent slats. You know, stop it, stop, stop it, it, stop it. Stitchings, yeah. quit it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think know, yours would be the John Player Special. Thank you. You nailed it. The John Player Done. Special. I don't want it to, to say John Player Special on the side, but I just do love that black with the gold striping. I think Sweet. that looks really cool. I don't think it would look good on everything, yeah. but any time I ever saw those cars, those that was the livery that captivated me as a kid, and I had no idea it was a cigarette company. I just think it looks great. <laughs> it looks really cool. And, it, and it also, the other thing was, at that time, it was one of the rare liveries that was surprisingly clean. It was just that. It wasn't of lots of other little stickers. It was just, this is who we are, which I thought was really mm -hmm. cool. I like the old liveries, like the Panamericana liveries on the old Porsches. I like the old Maseratis, like the Fangio era Maseratis, yeah. where it was just like the nose is blue and the badging is yellow on a red car, you know, and it's just clean. Sure, sure, okay. I like the the quadrifolio emblem, just mm -hmm. as maybe just a little bit further, you know, maybe it's a larger white triangle okay. with the four-leaf okay. clover painted on Interesting. there. Interesting, okay. The rest of it's still... 
you know, it's a race car. You I, would do your own and you'd do I, it well. I would, yeah, that's interesting. All right, so we need to buy race cars so we can do this. Sure, that seems like something we'll do. Guys, thank you for all your questions. We really appreciate it. Again, write to us with your Topic Tuesdays, your car conclusions, but most of all your car debates. We definitely want to hear from you and we love debating various things yeah. on the podcast. Write to us and uh, yeah, you know where to find us. Looking forward to next time. As always, cheers, everyone.